What is that little extra thing that makes the ordinary extraordinary? I believe it is the presence of God. At Christmas, God came into our ordinary world in the form of a child. In this season of hope and anticipation, as we eagerly await Christ's birth and Christ's return, God is still at work in and through the ordinary stuff of life. This Advent season at Second Presbyterian, we will begin a sermon series titled Advent in Plain Sight. Roughly based on a devotional written by Jill Duffield, we will connect everyday objects with the biblical text and find holy meaning and holy moments. We hope this Advent season will be an extraordinary one that allows us all to see God in and through ordinary things. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that we hear your word. Not in the words of scripture, not in the words of sermon, not first of all anyway, but that we hear your living word, the word that has claimed our hearts, that was born in relationship, and that through scripture and through sermon, we might hear, believe, and obey. Amen. As you heard and demonstrated by these first two pews that are filled, a number of young people will profess their faith today and become full members of Second Presbyterian Church with all the rights and privileges thereunto, including, yay, the ability to vote at congregational meetings. I know that's what you've been looking for all your life. There obviously is so much more than that. It's an opportunity to make an adult profession of faith, to say for themselves what has been said for them and on their behalf for so many years. And to prepare for this moment, they have attended confirmation classes. Well, this sermon will serve as a sort of last lesson before you are confirmed. And of course, it's a sermon for us all. It is about reading scripture. We already heard our Old Testament lesson. We read responsively a portion of Psalm 8 as our call to worship. Listen now for God's word in the reading of a passage most often read on this Sunday, Epiphany Sunday. From Matthew 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. The word of the Lord. I'm an early riser, though sometimes I sleep in till after five. I love to look out the window After the sun rises and after a night of snow, I particularly like the sight of bare branches against the white canvas. 
It is a view that is both beautiful and cold. A few hours later, there is a sight I also love. It comes when I see children sledding down Newhoff Hill or building snowmen in front yards. That view is both beautiful and warm. Looking up at the night sky can be a cold or warm vision. I recently saw the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, and there comes a point in the story when to look up is to see approaching doom, a meteor headed straight for Earth. That's a cold view. We heard a warm view when we read the verses from Psalm 8 in our call to worship. The poet who wrote those verses contemplates his existence as one who is caught between God and the beast of the field. What he writes is like a first morning shower. The water turns from cold to warm. Cold. When I look at the heavens and I see all those stars, who am I? How can the artist who painted these lights in the canvas of night even notice mere mortals like me who look on them? And then warm. Yet somehow I already know that the creator of all that is made mortals like me a little less than angels. He created us for relationship with him. And I somehow know that that creator cares for us. How is it that people can look at the night sky and have a different reaction than that? Because it happens. I mean, fact is, stargazers can appreciate the beauty of the starry sky, but cannot see anything but empty space and empty meaning. Realizing how small they are, and maybe there is approaching doom. Starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day with eyes that know that darkness is in my soul. I mean, even physicists have different reactions in their study of the sky and the stars and what it all means. Some sense God, some do not. It's not the science. They agree on the science. It's more the outlook. It's, it's more something about inside them that determines what they see. I am suggesting that why some people see stars and are warmed and others see stars and are chilled really has to do with who it is that's looking. Our New Testament lesson is a case in point. Hearing the passage is the opposite experience of hearing Psalm 9. With the Matthew passage, it's like when I was your age and I took a shower after two of my brothers or one of my sisters has taken one. Usually right when my head is all lathered up, the water turns from warm to cold. The passage begins warm when the Magi look up and see a star as a sign of hope and promise. Now these Magi are not Jewish and star study is part of their very un-Jewish faith. And it's a bit of a shock that the writer of Matthew's gospel, which takes such pains to explain how Jesus is the expected Jewish Messiah, how Jesus is the anticipated son of David, how Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish law, would include at the very beginning of his gospel a story that cast in such a favorable light these 
strange, foreign, Gentile figures. Perhaps it is an early indication that Matthew sees Jesus as good news not only for Jews, but good news for the whole world. Anyway, these magi hear that the Messiah, that the people of Abraham have long been waiting for, a new king born in the line of David has been born. And they do what students of stars do. They use the stars for navigation. They fix on a star that they know sits somewhere above the Jerusalem region where this child is to be born. And with a benevolent spirit that I wish more people these days had, they go out of their way to celebrate another people's good news. The Magi come to Jerusalem to ask for help in finding precisely the town where the descendant of David is to be born. And then the passage turns cold. King Herod hears of what the Magi are seeking and it terrifies him. For him, the news of a Messiah is like hearing that a meteor is headed straight toward his world, a world where the benefits of power and wealth flow in his direction. And so he summons the chief priest and the, the scribes to consult scripture to determine the life where it is said that the son of David will be born. You see, the general revelation of stars can reveal only so much. It takes the special revelation of scripture to guide him to Bethlehem. Now, this is where I'm going to stop with the story. I'm going to stop here in the story because the focus of my sermon, my last lesson to the confirmands before they are confirmed, is on reading Scripture. I want us to notice that both the Magi and the King read the same Scripture, but have different intents. The Magi, they, they seek a child to worship. The King seeks a threat to be eliminated. The one embraces a future of change. The other defies it because he wants nothing to change. One reading warm, the other reading cold. This is as good a time as any to raise up two principles of reading scripture that Presbyterians have embraced since their beginning and, and really had, been, had come long before them. The first principle is this. Faith finds faith in Scripture. King Herod proves that Scripture can be read with self-serving intent and that bad faith readings can lead to bad results. Read the Bible cold, and it can be what you want it to be. It can reflect back whatever you have inside of you. It can be read in all kinds of ways that does not lead to the good news as passages are cherry-picked and manipulated to say what they want the Bible to say. I mean, read the Bible in a sexist way and you can find celebration of male domination. Read it in a nationalistic way and it can be a celebration of a nation, my nation. Read it in an ideological way, and it can be the celebration of one political party or cause. Read it in an individual way, and it can be your guide to self-absorption or glorification, or a resource for why God 
why Jesus shares your views, your conservative views, your liberal or progressive views. Read it from a place of cultural arrogance, and it can be this silly record of a people too ignorant to understand what it means to be a modern, or what it means to be woke, or what it means to be a capitalist in a democracy. Read it from a place of atheism, and it can be read as a library of contradictions and even proof that God is cruel, or really what they're trying to make it, that God does not exist. Read it from a place of science or history, and it can be read as a textbook that is so outdated and needs to be tossed aside. But the Bible can be read differently than that. It can be read warmly. This Bible, so full of contradictions, reflecting different times and cultures, ignorant of modern science and not aware of how we moderns have it all figured out and have the answers. It can still be read warmly as a witness to this good and loving God who not only created all that is, but also cares about you and me. A God who demands justice and shows mercy. A God who condemns sins and forgives sinners. A God who requires repentance but for the purpose of reconciliation. A God who will be a Messiah and lead us through this journey of life. To go back to that first principle, faith finds faith in the Bible. Or put another way, it is love for God that finds God's love in Scripture. Faith doesn't begin in words read. It begins in life experience. It is born of experienced relationship. God's love, justice, compassion, and mercy are always experienced before they are understood. And Scripture is a witness, a help, as faith seeks understanding. St. Augustine. But now we have another problem. To read Scripture warmly means prioritizing some passages of Scripture over other passages. And that leads me to that second principle of reading Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the only way to do that is to let the relationship that we have with God and Christ be the lens by which we read, the lens by which we judge this ought to be given more weight than another. That means, by the way, that we should begin precisely where King Herod begins, only with a different heart. It begins finding Jesus. Let me put it this way. Imagine all Scripture, all the passages of Scripture being this, this, this sky full of stars, this mess of stars in the night sky. Well, we need to be like seafaring adventurers once were. We need to find those signature stars to help guide us in making sense of the night sky, make sense in, as we put together the constellations that will help us chart our way home. First, find the passages that speak to the primary good news that God so loved the world that he lived in it. Begin there. Begin with the passages then that bear the bright shining light that God's unconditional love still 
lives among us, still moves among us. And then from there, find the constellation of passages that help bring sense and order to the sky and allow you to navigate your life. Like Jesus teaching that the greatest command of all this confusing laws of God, the greatest command is to love God and love neighbor. Study the rest of it, but start and end there. Or Jesus teaching about God's unconditional love by telling the story of the prodigal son. Or Jesus demonstrating what love of neighbor really looks like by welcoming the outcast and dining with the sinner or healing the sick and forgiving those who betray him. Or Paul reflecting on Jesus' death and resurrection by declaring that, well, gosh, if that's true, then nothing can separate us from God's love. And then on a separate occasion, declaring that the differences of race and gender and social standing we sometimes think are so significant make no difference at all when it comes to God's love. And Revelation's vision that in the new Jerusalem, the final kingdom where God's reign is clear, there is no crying or pain or sorrow anymore. And with those stars to guide you, you'll, you'll better make sense of the Old Testament and know what passages should be raised up or given more weight than other passages. I'll suggest a few of them. The beginning of Genesis where God created everything, including us, and says, it's all good. The passage in Exodus, when God says to slaves, you don't belong to Pharaoh, you belong to me. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. In Deuteronomy, the constellation of the Ten Commandments and then the shining star of the command to love God with all one's heart, soul, and strength. Or in the prophecy of Micah with his declaration that empty rituals mean nothing to God, but justice flowing through the community, that means everything. Or in the prophecy of Isaiah with his comfort of exiles who think that their life with God is behind them, telling them that their best life with God is ahead of them. Or in the book of Proverbs when it says that the beginning of wisdom is a particular kind of humility, which it describes as a fear of God, but which I think can be thought of as a respect for truth. Or in the book of Job, when it tells us that having God near is more important than having answers to questions that cannot be answered. Like why do sometimes children die for no reason? Yes, there are many stars in the scriptural sky with many passages to pick and choose from to say, well, anything that one wants scripture to say. But if somehow your heart has found a way to selflessly love others in ways that you have been selflessly loved, if you have found joy and delight, not in thinking yourself a God, that everything revolves around you, but in knowing that you belong to God, and if you have learned that reconciliation with others is the art of life, and reconciliation with God is at life's end, then you bring something with you when you look at that night sky. And you bring something with you when you look at the biblical sky and understand it. Your God-given bias for justice, love, and grace will help you find the guiding lights 
that will help you hear the good news of the Bible that's there for Jews. Oh, and there for us Christians. Oh, and is there for the Magi. Well, I guess it's there for the whole world. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.